Hi everyone, Lee here up in a brief little intro before we get into this episode. I'm so happy to be back in your podcast feeds with a fully researched episode. It's been a while and I thank you all for your patience. This episode was recorded in November 2022 and was originally meant to go out that month, but unfortunately, due to some health struggles and some pretty significant technical issues with trying to edit this episode, we just weren't able to get it out until now, but I'm so happy to bring it to everyone. Myself and my guest host worked really hard on it for a long time and will be bringing more to you in the future. Before I transition you into the episode, I just have a few brief things that I wanted to mention up top here. One is a disclaimer. There will be a few quotes near the beginning of the episode that contain pronouns that were not changed, that I had intended to change and didn't catch it until after we had recorded. So if it sounds odd that some of the pronouns for folks that we are referencing in quotes were changed and not others, it was an oversight on my part and I apologize. Second is there are multiple times in this episode where we are attempting pronunciations of words in languages that we do not speak. So if you're affiliated with any of the nations or identities that we cover in this episode, we encourage you to reach out to us with pronunciations or corrections for anything we might have gotten wrong. We would be so happy to hear from folks, so please feel free to reach out to us. Lastly, this episode is being released at the end of January 2023, and I just wanted to let all of you know, anyone who is local or close enough to San Francisco Bay Area, the Bates Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirits powwow is actually happening really close. It's coming right up on Saturday, February 4th at Fort Mason Festival Pavilion in San Francisco. If you're not close enough to be able to come in person, there's two things you can do. One, there will be a live stream of the event that you can check out. And two, you can throw some money their way. You can donate to them online so you can help make the powwow the best it could possibly be and they can realize everything they'd like to do for the event. You can go to Bates, B-A-A-I-T-S dot org and check it out. That's all I've got in terms of announcements. I really hope that you enjoy the episode and welcome back. Hello and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. everyone. It's been a minute. I'm Lee Pfeffer, your host of History is Gay. I'm excited to be bringing a new episode to you. Full-length episode. It's been a while getting this out, mainly because big topic and also life things have been happening, although when are life things not happening? But I have a super fun guest host today who has become a very good friend of mine, and we uh, are constantly talking about fun fandom things and also queer history stuff. So welcome back to the feed. I hope that you have enjoyed some of the 
the bonus interview episodes that we've been doing. Let me know how you feel about those. I can never quite know uh, whether people like them or not. <laughs> Part of me is always like, oh god, I hope people aren't uh, mad that I'm not putting out full episodes right now. But I'm excited to be back here in this space for some cool topics. My guest host is Sam Campbell. They are uh, a big nerd, a big fandom nerd, <laughs> and <laughs> they are also indigenous. They are a two-spirit person who works with Bates, which is Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirits, and we're gonna have some fun conversations today, and this is actually our first our first episode of many to Hopefully come. Many. Uh, yeah. Hi, Sam. How are hi. you? Hi. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> you know, today's a good day. Yeah, like Lee said, I'm Sam. I am a board member with Bates, and I was also the drum keeper for them during the COVID pandemic. So that was a, a, a different beast, trying to figure out how to hold drum circles virtually. But we did it, and I think we did it pretty well. So, yeah. Heck yeah. Can you tell folks just a little bit about you and where you are and what you do and how, I mean, you know, we got connected sort of through my work and then also realized that we were both big gay fandom nerds too. <laughs> yeah, no, well, we got connected. It was actually through Bates. Yeah. Bates did a little um, panel discussion and you asked me afterwards, like, I would like to have you help me with a podcast episode. And I was like, yes, absolutely. And here we are like, what, a year later? Almost, like a year later. Almost yeah. exactly a year later. Um, <laughs> it was supposed to be like, oh, in the next couple of months, let's, you know, here we are. <laughs> like, right. Um, but I recently moved to Arizona. I went back to school. I'm doing earth and space exploration in Arizona at ASU. I'm a docent at the Scientific Exploration Gallery. I love playing Dungeons and Dragons and educating people about Indigenous history. Hell yeah. Yeah, you've done a TED Talk or two as well. Yes, two. Yeah. So if you haven't guessed by what Sam has alluded to, we're going to be discussing systems and identities of gender and sexuality for Indigenous people in what is now the United States, a little bit of Canada, original name Turtle Island. We'll be sticking mostly to the U.S., mainland U.S., a little bit into Canada. But we're going to talk today about pre-colonization and mid-colonization histories behind two-spirit identities and gender nonconformity and what happened to that history and take a look at what it means to be two-spirit then, now, how it's evolved over time. Just like a tiny topic, you know, super, <laughs> super granular. <laughs> Nothing too yeah, complicated. This, this episode's topic has like evolved over the year that we've been talking about it. So like I was saying at the beginning, this is like the first of multiple episodes. We're not going to try to like smash everything into one. I don't know. This is this is like what queer indigeneity 101 <laughs> you were mentioning. Yeah, no, it really feels like we're sitting here being like, oh, we're not going to like try to push like as much as we possibly can. But really, like there is so much that even though we're trying not to push as much as we possibly can, like we still kind of are because it's just like, oh, but this is so important. Oh, right. but this is so important. You know? Yeah. yeah. Content warnings for this episode will abound. Content warnings will include murder, colonialism, mentions of sexual assault, transphobia, homophobia, fetishization and exoticization of native identities, outdated language, whole bunch of fun, colonialist bullshit. If you can think of an ism, it's probably in here. Yeah, we might we might make a record this episode for how many times we end up having to use the fuck colonialism jingle. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll just call that, that's the title of this episode, it's just fuck colonialism. 
It's just a really quiet, like, undertone through the whole episode. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so this is going to be concept-focused, so we're going to break it down into a couple of different sections. And then we will, as always, end the podcast with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. Uh, so we're going to start us off a little bit with some social and historical context. So the original stewards and inhabitants of Turtle Island were several nations and tribes for thousands of years, going back to Paleo-Americans, right? And that history can pretty much only be found in archaeological record. We don't have a lot of information about indigenous life and culture that doesn't come from in the middle of colonialism. So first contacts between indigenous peoples on the continent and European settlers began in the late 15th and 16th century. Spanish and French quote-unquote explorers, like the heaviest of air quotes, like <laughs> Columbus, fuck that guy. Fuck, 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 colonialism. And Juan Ponce de Leon, fuck that guy. Fuck, 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 colonialism. Uh, who pretty much immediately began subjugating, exploiting, murdering, and colonizing indigenous folks. From the 16th to the 19th century, indigenous populations declined immensely, whether from disease brought over from Europe, violence, warfare, displacement, genocide, and just kind of general loss of culture and cultural autonomy. Yeah. So like a lot of the sources that we will be using are unfortunately coming from these colonist mindsets, right? So we do want to preface this by saying that most of the oral and written histories of the indigenous people of the U.S. and Canada are gone. Actually, most of what we have left is just from the oral histories that have been passed down, but also just observations collected by these white missionaries and colonizers or anthropologists. So there's very little firsthand accounts from actual indigenous perspectives. And obviously that is no fault to the indigenous people, but it's it's something that's important to note because as you're going through these numbers and these facts and statistics, you're going to notice some contradictions and you kind of have to know how to look at research on a wider base and know how to like extrapolate what is true, what is false, what is somebody being egregiously racist, you know, stuff like that. So there's going to be differences based on like whose account we're looking at, what kind of editing is happening through like the white colonizer lens or even just like religion, Christian, moral ideology, whatever missionaries are coming onto the scene at the time. Most of the sources we find that do mention indigenous folks with roles or behaviors that were, you know, viewed as, quote, variant. They're like from the 1500s to like the 1900s. And it's like, at first it was like notes and observations and judgments from like missionaries. And then you start to see more the anthropological lens come in. And so many indigenous queer folks, two spirit folks, all of us have had to just reconstruct our own identities and histories based on these accounts from the white colonizers and from the little that we have left kind of being fed back to us from oral histories, like whatever was able to survive residential schools and survive the brutal colonization of indigenous people and survive just religion in general. So let's bring it into, like, what do we say when we say Two-Spirit? What are indigenous thoughts and systems of gender and sexuality around this time? We're obviously not going to be able to be super comprehensive in the span of one episode. Native people aren't a monolith. Different nations have their own beliefs, societal structures, etc. So, like, this is not a, this is what indigenous culture says about quote-unquote queerness. 
Yeah. You know, what we can say, though, is that there are around 574 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. and 630 in Canada. And there are many who are not federally recognized. Historian Will Roscoe actually based here in, well, I guess I'm not here anymore, based out in San Francisco. He talks about how there are as many as 150 documented tribes that recognized gender nonconforming identities. And the idea that 150 people have said is like a smaller number, but that's still, that's 150. And like Mm -hmm. when we take into account the vast number of tribes that aren't quote unquote federally recognized, that number can shift a lot. Yeah. And since then, more communities have like come forward and started recognizing it. So the number could be higher. There's a really nice quote from a Crow tribal elder that Will Roscoe prefaces, who is a white historian, a white gay historian, who's done a lot of a lot of historical work on like two spirit identities, but he is not native. Uh, but he, he interviewed someone in 1982 who said, we don't waste people the way white society does. Every person has their gift. And I think that that's a really good way to like kind of go into this. Yeah, I really Uh, like that a lot. Yeah. Do you want to just like kind of put in your own words what your definition is of a two-spirit person as someone who is a two-spirit person? Yeah, I guess that's important to note. Like I do identify as two-spirit. I've told people that I work with the Bay Area American Indian two-spirits and they still wouldn't really put it together. So there it is, verbally. I am two-spirit. Um, so yeah, a, a two-spirit person is someone who generally did not fit the typical gender roles assigned to them, or they fulfilled specific ceremonial or economic or social roles. And when the expectation didn't match up with like what was being seen, like that is generally what a two-spirit person, like in the simplest possible terms, could boil down to. So this was presented in many ways. So clothing, attitude, actions, and many tribes defined this in different ways because each tribe had its own ideas of what gender roles could look like. So if in a tribe where like, of course, women can hunt, then like a woman hunting wouldn't necessarily be like a two-spirit role, right? But the breakdown of these like norms is most often like how we see this kind of funneling down into these two-spirit identities. We know this because they were not only like physical roles, as I've listed, but they were spiritual roles. So for some tribes, two-spirit people are seen as like this bridge between the physical and the spirit world. And this allowed them to be like better medicine people. So many nations recognized third or fourth genders in addition to their male and female um, man and woman identities. And sometimes these identities had very distinct terms. So we're going to talk about some of those like language differences because here we have just the word like two-spirit or like in English we have a identity like non-binary or trans or right but like each tribe had their own words for it. And so I think that's kind of how we are going to introduce some of these ideas. Yeah. So this leads us to the word of the week. Before we get further into the episode, we need to have a conversation about language because we're going to be using some very specific language here. Um, so word of the week, this episode is basically the transition between how, how we got to the term two-spirit. We're choosing to use the term two-spirit to refer to indigenous folks who were and are gender nonconforming and or displayed or experienced same gender, same sex attraction. But it's a, you know, it's a relatively new term. So let's go into the history of the language and give context. 
Yeah, tribes who recognized two-spirit identities had their own names, kind of like I have, I was saying, for their gender non-conforming people, as well as the ways that they treated them and like viewed them in their own unique tribal and cultural structures. So one of the things that comes up a lot is pronouns, you know, around just two-spirit identity or, or gender in general. And many indigenous languages don't use gendered pronouns or use like grammatical gender in the same way that English or like Spanish or other Latin-based Western languages do. So it's another way that just in language, like gender is viewed differently. And I think we have some uh, uh, we have some time to go into some specifics of that. Yeah, we'll be we'll be going into like specific names and identities for different nations when we get a little bit further into the episode. As they come up. Yeah. Yeah. From tribal names, original indigenous language names, we move into the era of European-American colonization terms. Since many of the sources depicting these accounts of gender or sexually diverse indigenous peoples come from these explorer accounts and then later anthropologists, you get a variety of terms that they used in trying <laughs> to describe and make sense of what they saw according to their own like Western worldviews. So, of course, you know, a heavy dose of, <laughs> of grain of salt here. Um, a lot of these accounts will like reference the tribal names for, you know, whoever they were uh, interacting with or like loosely transcribed versions. But they also used a lot of terminology that like ascribed moral judgments and conflate gender and sexuality. So you'll see a lot of these sources use the terms like hermaphrodite or sodomite or a whole bunch of these things where it's like, we really don't know what the fuck is going on here. There's like a constant confusion and upholding of a dichotomy of gender and sexuality. There was like a Spanish explorer in California in 1775 who basically, there's a quote saying like, I inferred they must be hermaphrodites, but from what I learned later, I understood they were sodomites. So just not having any room for understanding anything outside of, you know, a Western binary. Yeah. And so just to preface this next one, it is considered a slur. So we do want to just say that right up front. But the word that we moved into was Berdash. And this term was thought to be introduced by the French. It was found in publications after like the 1800s, and it was considered a quote unquote frontier term. And it had traveled and was being used by both white settlers and indigenous people. It was recorded using lots of different spellings. And according to Will Roscoe, it became the standard anthropological term for alternative gender roles among Native Americans. So it kind of caught on as a way for them to like describe themselves. And it was like a word that they could use with other people to also kind of have this idea understood. And so they started using it as well. And we'll talk about how that's happened also with Two-Spirit. But this term derives from the French meaning passive homosexual or boy prostitute. And even farther back, it comes from Persian. I believe it's pronounced like barda, meaning captive or prisoner of war or slave. So, you know, you can see how it's fucked up and problematic. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the things that we don't do enough is like look at the etymology of words and mm -hmm. doing this research really pulled up for me. Like, oh, my God, I did not know how like some of these words like came into our language and it is disturbing. And so yeah. it it's when you think of it that way, it's really 
strange how it like it did gain favor among anthropologists, like to refer more broadly to any like any indigenous individuals that they came across who performed mixed gender roles. And like even more frequently, it's described to any person, specifically males who they perceived to be homosexual or like bisexual, effeminate by Western social standards. It just kind of became like shorthand for, yeah. you know, this person is different. Yeah. And it eventually came to like describe, you know, lesbian and bisexual and like gender nonconforming people as well, specifically women as well. But that was like an afterthought. So as time went on, it went from being seen as just like a standard that we use to like, actually, let's take a look at where this word came from and like what it's being used to describe. And it is now like viewed as derogatory. And people started to really hear what others were saying when using that word against them. And this was a term that was in use up until literally really recently. It's it's really only the last 40 years that it's fallen out of favor because we get in 1990 the beginning use of a new term, two-spirit. Yay! Woo! Yeah, so in terms of a definition for two-spirit, so two-spirit you'll sometimes see written as 2S, especially in like the LGBT acronym. It is defined as like this modern pan-indigenous umbrella term that is used by some, like not all indigenous people, like to describe gender diverse community members, many of whom fulfilled ceremonial and social roles like pre-colonization. So it is a term that we can claim together despite where you come from, like whether or not your specific people recognized this previously. This is a term that you could, as an indigenous person can like grab a hold on and find a community within. <laughs> And it was a term that was created or adopted in 1990 at the third annual Intertribal Native American First Nations Gay and Lesbian American Conference in Winnipeg, Canada. And if that's not a mouthful for a conference, <laughs> I don't know what it's. Uh, it's very long. The exact person who coined the term is sort of unclear. There are some sources that say that the word was proposed by Anishinaabe elder Myra Laramie, saying that it came to her in a dream. There's another person, Christopher Cole Miner, who is Ho-Chunk, credits indigenous anthropologist Dr. Wesley Thomas, who is Diné, as coming up with it. Sometimes you'll see it credited to Will Roscoe. He himself does not claim any ownership of the term. And it was a word that was like created in English and then translated to Ojibwe to honor the language of the peoples whose territory the conference was being held on. We looked it up in a phonetic alphabet because um, neither of us speak Ojibwe, but the word that they translated it to, if you would like to pronounce it, Sam, in your best. Yes, this is literally vowel by vowel, like through the phonetic alphabet. So this is me doing my actual best. It's Nish Manidok. Uh, so in terms of like criticism of the term, right? So we mentioned that it's a term used by some, many, to be fair, uh, but not all indigenous people. There are some indigenous folks that have resisted the adoption of the word two-spirit because despite the intention of it, like not to be a replacement, the word has begun to replace tribally specific terms and teachings. This is partially because a lot of this has been lost to history and partially because Western society has grabbed onto it and doesn't understand the nuances to its existence, right? A lot of times, like, people just kind of use it as a shorthand to yeah. say, ah, yes, this mm -hmm. indigenous person is gay. <laughs> yeah, and, like, I, I personally explain it like this. It's really hard because indigenous languages are dying. And so, like, we don't want to lose those words. And having something like Two-Spirit does kind of, in a way, aid the loss of those, like, original words, original language. But because there's no comparison to what we have today to mean, like, 
what it actually means to be two-spirit to an indigenous person. It's like translating a metaphor from one language to another. Like, it just doesn't work the same. So, mm. like, we need something to describe ourselves to non-indigenous people. And the term two-spirit allows us to do that in a general understanding way. But, like, since the only thing that non-indigenous people know is two-spirit, like, uh, the original, like, quote-unquote, metaphor is buried in that dominant culture. So it is important to know if you are an indigenous person from a tribe who still has a language that's alive and your two-spirit, find out if you have actual like language that still exists in your community. And so you can like introduce yourself like, I'm two-spirit, I'm not gay, which is the Dene word for like males presenting as females. That can help like bridge those two things. I mean, it's it's kind of how the B word was used, like, as kind of a pigeon. It's just that this is a version that it doesn't come from, like, a really racist mm -hmm. and subjugating place. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and some folks consider the term, like, limiting or misleading and emphasize binary limitations of male and female in one body or duality. There's a quote from Alice B. Kehoe, who said, uh, At conferences, I heard several First Nations people describe themselves as very much unitary, neither male nor female, much less a pair in one body. Nor did they report an assumption of duality within one body as a common concept within reservation communities. So there's, you know, kind of, it's the best kind of translation you can do there, but it's not a perfect metaphor. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that speaks to it really well that like, we also kind of walk into these other cultures, like assuming that they have a gender system, you know, and maybe they don't. And maybe they didn't really think about it until we brought it up. We don't really know like when we're anthropologically like walking into a new community. So yeah, we kind of have to just take people's word for it. So back to let's look at what are we talking about here? So we're going to break this down into a couple of different overarching sections. We're going to talk about like gender and presentation. We're going to talk about sexuality, spirituality, and then indigenous views and attitudes towards two-spirit individuals in their own communities. Um, and then we will continue on. So let's talk about gender stuff. For a lot of two-spirit folks in these sources, a frequent marker of their two-spirit status was some form of like cross-dressing or cross-gender work or behavior, not exclusively. Usually you'll see this ascribed to a lot of assigned male at birth two-spirit people who adopted like cross or mixed gender roles in dress, but a lot of sources alluding to assigned female at birth two-spirit people, which to be fair, tend to be less prevalent in the historical record. Many of them didn't uh, dress in men's clothing, but they did avoid marriage or like marry women. They would participate in war parties. There's a source from anthropologist Leslie Spear in 1930 that talks about the Klamath nation that says, A woman named Kopak lived like a man, although she retained women's dress. She married a woman, she tried to talk like a man, and invariably referred to herself as one. And then another quote from the same source, Another woman still living has had relations with both men and women. She never adopted men's garb, but told them that she was a man. Many AMAB folks that you would see described in these records worked among and dressed much like the women in their communities. And sometimes you would have like mixed, mixed roles. We'll talk more specifically about different roles within different nations. This is like painting, yeah. painting with a broad brush. Yeah, as, as broad of a brush as you can find, you know. <laughs> Um, We're but, gonna go big and then get granular. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it, when you're when you're talking about the beginnings of it, you really have to like reach out and touch as many things as you can because um, it's okay. also it's <laughs> yes, very. Um, 
But, you know, recognition of two-spirit identities typically emerged in many tribes, like, during childhood. Boys might show, like, an interest in women's work, like beading or crafting or helping with the cooking. Um, the girls would want to go out and hunt and battle and might have an aversion to some of those specific, like, female roles. So, for example, in 1702, a, an account written down by Pierre Liette while he was observing the Miami people was, When they are seen frequently picking up the spade, the spindle, the axe, but making no use of the bow and arrows, as all the other small boys do, they are girt with a piece of leather or cloth which envelops them from the belt to the knees, a thing all the women wear. They are tattooed on their cheeks like the women and also on the breasts and the arms, and they imitate their accent, which is different from that of the men. They omit nothing that can make them like the woman. So basically saying like if there is a way to like more closely identify with the women and females in their tribe, they are doing that. Yeah. And sometimes this behavior was like observed or preceded by a spiritual intervention that would confirm this identity. A lot of times, especially in a lot of Plains nations, folks would experience like a dream or a vision and it would spark a change in their presentation or behavior and this onset of this different gender. So among the Yuma and the Katsan peoples, so Arizona, Lower California, these folks had two-spirit roles for both male and female assigned people. For female assigned people, they had, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce Kerhame and Elkcha for assigned male at birth people, and both adopted these two-spirit genders as a result of dreams at puberty. So we have these quotes from an account by C. Daryl Ford in 1931. He was an anthropologist. And we've gone through and we've, we've changed these pronouns. I'm gonna, we're going to use they-them pronouns where we don't know what somebody would have preferred. An Elkcha known to one informant had a dream implying their future occupation with women's work. When they came out of the dream, they put their hand to their mouth and laughed four times. They laughed with a woman's voice, and their mind was changed from male into female. And then female inverts, Kwarhame, are rarer, but they too realize their character through a dream at puberty. Their characteristic dream is of men's weapons. As a small child, the Kwarhame plays with boys' toys. I think really quick for like just a reference, when somebody is referred to as an invert, at the time it was also like not straight, not conforming, was their yeah. word was invert. Yep. Uh, we also have in 1841 from Pierre-Jean de Smet, another rare description of a female-bodied two-spirit person. There is a woman among the snakes, so that's uh, Northern Paiute, Bannock, and Shoshone, who once dreamed that she was a man and killed animals in the chase. Upon waking, she assumed her husband's garments, took his gun, and went out to test the virtue of her dream. She killed a deer. Since that time, she has not left off man's costume. She goes on the hunts and on the warpath. By some fearless actions, she has attained the title of quote-unquote brave and the privilege of admittance to the Council of the Chiefs. Nothing less than another dream could make her return to her gown. Yeah, I think stories like this are really what we have to take to heart, because although this is coming from like this white Western like cultural lens, this is a very good glimpse into I feel like these don't seem to be painted with like much else other than like a recounting of what was either said or, or described or observed, I guess is the word I was looking for, because the way that, you know, it's described by like fearless actions, you know, and that makes me feel at least a little bit better reading these being like, OK, it wasn't just getting constant negative attention. It was just like, let me write down what I'm observing. Right. And because of that, we notice like this importance of not just ascribing these like Western ideas of queerness onto these stories and onto these identities. Two spirit doesn't equal like trans or homosexual or whatever, you know, it is so much more nuanced than that. 
Yeah. And, you know, you can't separate two-spirit identities from their cultural, economic, and societal roles within their own communities, right? You can't, and you also can't divorce like two-spirit identity from native identity. Like, let me just say it right here. You can't be two-spirit if you're not indigenous. Yes. (laughs) Please don't. Jason Mraz. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. Please don't. Well, this was many Um, years ago. Yeah. Two-spirit identity has uh, i mean maybe you should talk about this like two-spirit identity has essential ties to like the economic organization of each society in which like these individual roles come out of yeah and i think it really kind of comes down to this idea that um there's an essay in the book living the spirit by midnight sun and they talk about this they say the cultural construction of gender and sexuality must be seen in terms of the sexual division of labor substance patterns social relations and male female relations this is one of those ways that we kind of overlook when we say like oh two spirit people like give to our community like it's not just in terms of like healing and spirituality there's actual things that are physically being done in these social structures and when you kind of try to take two-spirit and like boil it down to like, oh, it just means that your gender is different. That's just not true. Like that might be how you view it in Western society, but that's not how it operated. And I know a lot of like indigenous queer people, right? Like queer indigenous folks who do not identify as two-spirit. It, it is its own identity. And so like not every person who was doing something different wanted to identify as two-spirit. And I think that we try to conflate the two a lot. Yeah, um, there's a really great quote from Gio Sakuma Neptune, who's Passamaquoddy, and they're a, a two-spirit activist, politician, and artist. They say, what people struggle with is that they define two-spirit as a sexual orientation, a gender identity, a spiritual identity, or a societal role. In reality, those four parts are not separate, but exist into one intersectional identity. And then Lenny Hayes, who's a therapist and member of uh, Sisseton Wapaton Oyate, says, Two-Spirit is not an identity. It's a community organizing tool or a placeholder, which I really liked that quote. Yeah. No, I think that's really important because the conversation comes up a lot in our circles about what is your responsibility to your community like as a two-spirit person. It's an organizing tool, like the way that we have been able to create safe queer space. Like even if you're not two-spirit, like you, we have made this for our community. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about like that sexuality quadrant of this like intersectional tool yeah yeah it's kind of come up a little bit in our conversation already that like many indigenous cultures didn't have this binary opposing belief system of like heterosexuality or homosexuality you know but rather they're like reproductive versus like non-reproductive reproductive being like for children and kinship role fulfillment that kind of stuff and like non-reproductive for like pleasure and like emotional rewards types of sex They didn't have value judgments on it. There is another little nugget from Will Roscoe saying like sexual pleasure was valued in its own right. It forged relationships. It was entertaining. It was necessary for good health. So it is definitely not constrained in these like you're doing this just to have kids or whatever, you know, like it's kind of just a part of life. And Two-Spirit folks, like, then had the unique place of, like, occupying special spaces of, like, non-reproductive sex and romantic love as being a primary part of their lives. Yeah. Yeah, like, many Two-Spirit people, like, also had same-sex relationships because they're not distinct gender sex roles. They weren't considered, like, queer or, like, gay relationships. I'm using air quotes. You can't hear me or you can't see me doing it. For lack of a better word. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, they weren't 
you know, they weren't considered non-traditional relationships, you know? Because it was still like a man and a woman or a man and a different gender. So it wasn't like gay. Yeah. And and like the way that we label gender and sex just kind of doesn't mix with that, you know? Yeah. uh, Some some sources will hint at or like refer to same sex relationships between male-bodied people who like otherwise didn't necessarily occupy mixed gender roles or behaviors. So if you were going to use a shorthand, like outsider Western views would look at these folks as like gay, but you know, it's all, it's all kind of mixed around. There's a, a description from 1846 of kind of male-male intimacy sans any cross-gender dressing. There's uh, these two people, Rabbit and Hailstorm, who are two Lakota men. It says, Neither should the Hailstorm's friend, the Rabbit, be passed by without any notice. The Hailstorm and he were inseparable. They ate, slept, and hunted together, and shared with one another almost all that they possessed. If there be anything that deserves this to be called romantic in the, I'm going to replace a word, native character, is to be sought for in friendships such as this, which are common among many of the prairie tribes. It was so sweet. Yeah. I ship them. They're so cute. <laughs> I love hearing Aww. these kinds of indigenous stories because we don't hear it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. we have, like, one confirmed picture of, like, a happy, like, indigenous queer couple, you know? like Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, the Timucuan in Florida allowed marriages between men. There's a account from 1943 that mentions them. Um, also, it should be noticed that Timucuan culture did not survive colonization. Uh, when the Spanish left Florida in 1763, the surviving 83 Christianized Timucuans left with them. So yeah, which left. is like very sadly a not unique. 83 story. goddamn people for yeah. an entire yeah. like nation. Like, Fuck, 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 colonialism. So yeah, spirituality. You want to talk about a little yeah, bit about? Yeah, yeah. No. You can't divorce these roles from, like, spirituality. Yeah, you really can't, especially because it's so heavily talked about still today, like, within two-spirit communities, you know, because two-spirit people took on so many different roles. Some tribes accepted them into the roles that they desired and some placed them in positions of like spiritual power, which I mentioned like a little bit about being medicine people. There's an account from like 1673 to like 1677 from Jesuit father Jacques Marquette along the Mississippi about two spirit spiritual leaders that he observed saying that, quote, they are summoned to the councils and nothing can be decided without their advice. Finally, through their profession of leading an extraordinary life, they pass for spirits or persons of consequence. So it is highlighting the thing I had said before about sometimes two-spirit people are seen as this bridge between like the male and female spirits, between the physical world and the spirit world. It is their like spiritual duty to help guide the tribe in decisions. Yeah. And in many Plains cultures, two-spirit folks receive their roles and spiritual powers, like we mentioned before, through dreams and visions. A couple of examples, uh, Mandan, Lakota, Arapaho, Omaha, Osage, all of these tribes had dreams and visions of like female deities, sometimes the moon, that confirmed their identities. The Osage term for two-spirit folks, mehuga, uh, translates to moon instructed, which I really wanted to put in because uh, our our continuing theme of the moon is gay has, I, has um, returned. I am going, like, when people ask me, like, you know, how I know anything, I'm just going to say, like, I am moon instructed now. As a person that does astronomy, like, that is, yeah. Yes! What is that, um... That thing from the the animated movie, the um, Road to El Dorado, the oh like, God. can't today, nope, sorry, stars, 
Stars say we can't do it. Moon says, I'm sorry, I'm instructed by the moon and um, I can't go into work today. The moon says it's time for me to eat Cheetos and sit on my couch. I honestly right, that, like that's how you're gonna go through your world your uh, your life now <laughs> honestly like having the reason that like the the name of my gender just like being moon instructed like is it feels so like deeply connected you know like what is woman what is man like what is female you know like that those don't have like mm-hmm. this just feels so like real and personal and i think it for me at least like really highlights the importance that these people had for their two-spirit folks because like the moon is when you really think about it sorry bringing some of my study into this the moon is like the one changing thing in the sky constantly right so in the mm-hmm. night sky so like you have the stars they stay the same but the moon is how you track time the moon is how you know when you're gonna soon start like picking your crops the moon is when you're gonna know like how many days have passed it's easier to track the shifting constellations but the moon is the one thing that every night is different and so like yeah moon instructed to me it's just like a beautiful marriage of those two ideas hell yeah oh man i love science (laughs) yes no you are absolutely a science gay and i love it (laughs) it's so good um a couple of source quotes that describe examples of of folks coming to their two-spirit genders through dreams or visions in 1826, there's an account from Thomas A. McKinney, said, you know, a grain of salt for so the language in here. I had hoped to have seen one of these anomalies, which are sometimes found among the Chippeways, and I believe among other tribes in the West. It is what they call a man-woman. This singular being, either from a dream or from an impression derived from another source, considers that he is bound to oppose upon himself all the exterior of a woman and undergo all the drudgery which the men exact from the, and I'm going to replace a word here, women. Uh, It's a racist term that is used. You will see it if you read it, but we don't need to repeat it. Um, (laughs) And another one from 1711 from Joseph Francois Lafitau from a source called Men Who Dress as Women. The view of these men dressed as women surprised the Europeans who first encountered them in America, as they did not at first guess the motives for this species of metamorphosis. They were convinced that these people in whom the two sexes were confounded. Although the religious spirit which made them embrace this state causes them to be regarded as extraordinary human beings. So, Clearly, these settler accounts are getting, they're hearing these things directly from indigenous folks. Like, this is how I describe my own gender, and this is why, and this is when it came about. Yeah, and I think kind of what I was saying about the earlier ones, about how, like, the way that they're talking about it in such a positive light really kind of shows me that they're getting it. This one, too, like, although the religious spirit which made them embrace this state caused them to be regarded as extraordinary human beings, like, even in their, like, whitewashed religious brains, they are getting across the fact that, like, these people are important, you know? Right. What they do with that information ain't great, but... Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, like, views towards these folks within communities, right? So, you know, we're seeing these things where it's, like, clearly in a lot of different specific communities, these folks are really considered to be important. There's complexity there, right? Like, not all nations or tribes approved of or had two-spirit roles. And even within those that did, there's complex relationships. There's, it's not like a black and white good or bad. Some folks... There are some sources that it's like you may have two-spirit folks who are revered, but also could be targets for accusations of like witchcraft or, or something yes. like, I don't yeah, know, you, I, you can probably talk a little bit to. Yeah, I was on a panel once at the um, then Great Klexicon, Um 
Sorry if other people are loving it right now. <coughs> no shade. <clears throat> this is when some attitudes shifted for me. Um, I was on a panel, and it was a panel about indigenous representation on television. And I sat down along with my now good friend, Holly James. And there was two others who I didn't know. And we go down the line and introduce ourselves. And I said, hi, I'm Sam. I'm Two-Spirit. Blah, blah, blah. Intro credentials, whatever. Right. And the person next to me says, hi, I'm insert name here. Uh, my people don't believe in Two-Spirit people. Mm -hmm. After like me having just been like, um, you don't have to believe in me. Like I'm here. Like I exist. <laughs> right. And like my friend Holly was like the one right after that. So again, to be like, hi, I'm Two-Spirit. And it was a really weird way to be faced with like that kind of attitude in a queer space, you know? Mm. So like when we're saying like there's complexity and like not all people recognized it or whatever, or that it wasn't just like black or white, good or bad, like it is pervasive to today, the way that tribes will talk about it whether or not like historically they believed in it like we'll get into that later but that is still like a to-date problem right yeah well and i think it's 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 i think it's important to note too that like you have overall the the like way that two-spirit folks were received even within communities where it wasn't super common is not like the same as the way that two-spirit identities and genders were received among a western viewpoint right like there's exactly um that same ethnologist c daryl ford in 1931 writes about reception of the elkcha among the group it says as a rule parents are ashamed of such children but there's no attempt to force them or suppress the tendency so in some cases it's like you know any parent who might be disappointed that their child turned out a little differently than they expected um you know because of their own expectations but it's not like a it's not the same kind of like systemic rejection of that identity he says, in some cases, the quote unquote transformation is publicly recognized, friends are invited, and in the case of an Elksha, food is prepared by him. It is customary for an Elksha to undertake women's work, and it's thought to have a peaceful influence on the tribe. Maurice Kenny, who's Mohawk and has a, an essay in that compilation we were talking about before, Living the Spirit, writes, Every tribe had its fetishes and taboos, but no tribe had ironclad laws that said a young man need to take this or that path. He made up his own mind and followed the direction of his puberty vision, his inclination, though the tribal moors prodded him toward warrior-hunter career. I think a lot of what we were reading emphasized that, like, you know, this was respected and celebrated, etc., but we also don't want to, like, fall into the trap of, like... Oh, everything was perfect. Nothing could have ever Yeah, like, fantasy yeah. land of, like... And the... There was there was a really good quote somewhere that was just, like, the, the like, the, like, quote-unquote, like, magical Indian kind of shit. Exactly. Yes. Especially among, like, kind of white queer scholarship of like looking at you know queer history around the world has been like ah this is ideal this is it's it's complex there we go that's that's it that's, that's the end of the podcast it's complex yeah, you know, you I think yeah, you, everything's i don't even think we need to do this other episodes now <laughs> yeah there we go uh yeah i think that the the idea of complexity is lost on some people i think the way that you explained it is really good because when we try to just nail it down i think it makes it worse i think it makes more sense as a like not to use the word of um a colonizer in a previous quotation but it's i think it's better to leave it kind of as this like anomaly like this anomalous existence because when you try to define it that's when it breaks down mm -hmm. just as like a you know kind of a broad overview um like male-bodied two-spirit identities and same sex behaviors were regarded favorably among creek crow hopi mandan maricopa manomni 
Natchez, Diné, Omaha, Oto, Papago, Ponca, Kanalt, Seminole, Tubatulabal, Yuma, Yurok, and Zuni peoples. Yeah. Um, uh, and th- these are all coming, I mean, and this is all coming from like a, a study in 1951 from a book called Patterns of Sexual Behavior. Um, you'll also see female two-spirit identities or same-sex behavior, again, regarded favorably among the Chiricahua, Crow, Ojibwe, and Yuma, but at the same time, in some of those, like you would see disapproval of male two-spirit roles in the Chiricahua, Ojibwe, Klamath, and Pima. I think that when we are like considering this idea of like disapproval of male two-spirit people, I think when you talk about the economic role that two-spirit people played, they're in a, especially with tribes like Chiricahua who weren't necessarily always stationary in one place, they're migratory, right? Like having people in the like hunter role is so crucial to survival. I feel like when you look at it through those economic lenses, sometimes you can be like, okay, I kind of understand why this might exist, whether or not it makes sense in today's world, whatever is, is a different story. Yeah. 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 I think that was, you know, I was trying to find more things to like put in here to explain that. But that I think you got it is like, it's not disapproval of like, and these people are wrong and unnatural and whatever. It's like, okay, you're not like fulfilling the roles that we expected. And depending on how economic structures were set up, the reception Mm -hmm. to that is different. Yeah. And I want to catch a couple of things right here because I know like that person in my panel, people are going to be like, well, my tribe says this and they're very strong about this and that. Like, I'm sure there are exceptions to every rule. Right. But also for tribes who historically have had like very positive relationships with two certain people, like the people today will say like, oh, no, this is extremely wrong. It's never been okay." when that's because of things like religion and indoctrination. And so like if you're an indigenous person sitting here listening to this being like, well, my tribe would never do some cultural digging you might find out that at some point like yeah it was it was accepted or it was at least tolerated you know not necessarily like punishable by like kicking out your youngest child from their home when they're 18 you know so yeah i'd like to encourage all indigenous folks to dig deep into where they can find some indigenous histories all right so let's talk about various roles that people might might play as two-spirit folks. We're going to just like map out a couple of different roles that you might see, and then we're going to talk about specific two-spirit genders in different nations worth highlighting. I love these types of roles because it is not just like only two-spirit people do this, but it's like when two-spirit people do it, it's like different, you know? Mm-hmm. So like we're talking about crafters, right? Like you can go to like a powwow and get whatever. But if you go to a two-spirit powwow, the kinds of stuff you're coming home with are totally different. You can feel the amount of additional love that was put into it because they get to sell it in a two-spirit space, you know? So, like, keep that in mind with all of these things. It's like they exist from two-spirit people, but when you put it into a two-spirit space, the amount of, like, medicine and good energy that's coming out of it is, like, tenfold. So that's, like, crafters, spiritual leaders, medicine people, caretakers, teachers. Like, that's the role that I took on with the drum was, like, being a at a very young age and very intimidating way, like, a teacher and like a spiritual leader in those moments um batchmakers giving love advice yeah there are also in some tribes two-spirit folks would fulfill roles in death and burial so a lot of folks would act as undertakers or mourners or participate during war parties and scalp dances and it kind of speaks to these connections and links between that like non-procreative sexuality and fertility that two-spirit people kind of embody and the links between that and like creativity and inspiration and the links between like warfare and death. This bridge, like two-spirit folks kind of acting as a bridge between male and female and different energies like that, kind of reaching into other linkages mm-hmm. there, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So in, in Manache and Yokut and Tabatu Labal, uh, two spirit folks in many of these sources are described as having roles like preparing the dead for burial and stuff like that. All right, so let's talk about some like specific genders in various tribes and nations and talk about how fucking cool some of these people are. <laughs> uh, we're going to trade off. These are like kind of broad strokes of like, here's generally what some of these specific folks would do in their individual communities. And then in other episodes, we'll be like doing bios of a couple of folks who are, are well known throughout history. Mm hmm. So we'll start off with Crow, which is uh, around the area that is like southern Montana. Crow have a gender called Bate. You might see it as B-O-T-E or B-A-D-E. Various spellings, because of course these are all just like transliterations. With an accent over the E. Yes, with an accent over the E. Bate were usually assigned male at birth and were considered experts in crafts like needlework, excellent cooks. They were noted for being the most skilled among their communities at making teepees. An account from 1902 from SC Sims describes some folks as these persons are usually spoken of as she and they are highly regarded for their many charitable acts. There's a description of a Bade in Bighorn District, who was around like 50 years old from 1907-1912 by Robert Henry Lowy that said, According to several informants, former agents have repeatedly tried to make them, we're changing the pronouns here, don male clothes, but the other Indians, this is his word, the other <laughs> Indians themselves protested against this, saying that it was against their nature. Uh, perhaps the most well-known Bate in historical record is Oshtish, or finds them and kills them, who was born around 1854 and was one of the last known Bates of the Crow Nation. We'll do a whole episode on Oshtish, because there's a significant amount of info about their life from primary sources, and we would want to go into more detail about them, and also like more about Crow and Bate and attitudes toward sexuality and gender. But I just really wanted to include this quick quote from a 1919 interview with them, um, where when they were asked, you know, why they wore like women's clothes they said that is my road i have done it ever since i can remember because i wanted to do it and when they were asked if a spirit or a vision directed them or other crow to become bate oshtish said no it was just natural they were born that way so i really liked that i really like that too because i think we try really hard to like paint the past as like this like really weird and foreign thing but just to be like no that's just no i liked how it they were. like <laughs> it's super fine like you know like we, we don't need to put anything like extra like sprinkles on anything like it's just like yeah no that's right. exactly how we were you know yeah definitely yeah the next word that we want to talk about is from the Dene people the Navajo people it is Natle I've seen another word used to refer to like AFAB people I've mostly seen Natle used as an AMAB term but in more like current day I think is being used more interchangeably not sure why that shift is happening but like I have noticed mm -hmm. it in the Dene communities I think it might be because it's like the one that is said out loud the most so it's the one people know how to pronounce because I know for me like I just I don't know how to pronounce the other one so this word is um, meaning one who is changing and it is from the Dene people of the southern Arizona-ish area. So like the Navajo people like are known to have migrated from like northern northern United States down to Arizona-Mexico mm. border. Quick history like the Apache and Navajo people were like at one time like a people and migrated down and that's when they kind of split off into two groups. So like they're both kind of generally in the same area. So the Dene people recognize four to five genders. Men, women, masculine females, which are like AFAB people, 
feminine males, which are AMAB people, and those Nakle people who occupy more of like a middle space on the spectrum or continuously like changing and and that that constant bridge between the masculine and the feminine. The roles that Nakle people would take on are pretty like specialized. Male Nakle people would specialize like in women's activities farming, herding sheep, weaving, knitting, basket making, leather work, and like female Nazca people would do traditional like men's pursuits like hunting and warfare and the general like taking care of people. Many of them like combined the activities of men and women and there were even some activities like unique to them on their own. But for things like hunting and spinning wool, there were some very like sex segregated activities. So like despite you being not clear, you are going to stick to one or the other. You're not going to be able to combine the two of them in the same way that we try to talk about gender roles now of being like super strict as an abstract. Like some of these gender roles were actually like sometimes for a spiritual reason strict, especially in like the day people. There are some very strict things that gender can't affect like a person's menstrual cycle, you know, mm. that would affect like the kinds of things that you can interact with if you're on your cycle or not. So things like that are going to like exist whether or not you are two-spirit. But in general, like the Diné people were very like open and accepting of Nagle people. They often were giving out responsibilities specific to the two-spirit people in their communities. So like they were given the responsibility of like managing property or acting as the head of the household, arranging marriages and the affairs of just the day-to-day life of their own family, let alone like the greater community that they existed in. Indigenous communities relied on the types of leadership roles that two-spirit people would take on. Many Nakle people wore clothing distinct from men's or women's. So like they would be altered in a way to make them more androgynous. So they would like either alternate between like being more androgynous or being more like in specifically women's clothing. But some didn't cross-dress at all or they only really brought in their identity into these ceremonial occasions. So um, it wasn't always just about just, I guess, similar to what it is now. Like, it's not all about like how you dress, but it is like who you are inside. One Diné person who is known for really only stepping into this role outwardly in ceremonial occasions was Hustin Kla, who lived from 1867 to 1937. And when I say like stepping into it, I mean like they weren't dressing any differently. They were just kind of existing who they were. And then once it came into these ceremony occasions, that's when they would step up and really hold into that role. Yeah, I think what's really fun with Natle is that there's several times in many like origin myths where Natle are referenced, which is really fun. Specifically with the Diné origin. Like in core belief. Yes. Yeah. One that I love because there's also like a very interesting children's book to accompany with it. But I think the children's book was written by a white woman. So I'm not sure. But it's um, Turquoise Boy. Turquoise Boy became masculine and was known as bearer of the sun. And White Shell Girl was bearer of the moon. And they were both Natkle, which at the time like was translated as hermaphrodites. So Turquoise Boy and White Shell Girl, they saved the ancient Diné from angry water buffalo who stood in the way between them evolving from the fourth to the fifth and final world. So in terms of origin story, it's not just the typical like, oh, you know, first man met first woman and they brought the sun and whatever down. You know, this is not the creation story as much as it is the like epitome of the two-spirit story of like literally removing the barrier between the physical world 
in our ability to move into the next world, into the spiritual, like, fifth, final world. So it is not just, like, the giving and bringing of life. It is the two-spirit role to usher humanity into the next space. Yeah, there's a, a translation of the Turquoise Boy creation myth translated by Eileen O'Brien from 1956 that we'll link to in the sources um, where you can read it. And you're going to read that and it's going to say hermaphrodite, but, you know, just sub in, Natalie. There's another origin myth that's kind of referred to as like women versus men as, you know, the kind of shorthand for the story. But basically, it's a story where like the ancient Dine men and women decided to like live opposite each other across a river after first man discovered his wife has committed adultery. And the men basically go out and seek like a Nadle's advice before they decide to separate. And a Nadle lives with the men and is asked to do the women's work. And because of that, the men's side flourishes while the women's side like falters, which, you know, grain of salt. <laughs> um, but basically this kind of like this brings the sides back together. It's like, oh, well, they're doing so well. Let's let's come back. Like the Natale worries about the failure of future generations without the women and says, you know, let's bring everybody back. Right. Says like, let it now be the bringing across. I think there is also a translation by Eileen O'Brien of that story, too. It's hard to find some of the sources. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the best quotations that we came across for like describing how this role like played such an integral part in Navajo society and Diné society is from the 1930s anthropologist Willard Hill. And he recorded comments from elders about the Nakle people saying, quote, if there were no Nakle, the country would change. They are responsible for all the wealth in the country. If there were no more left, the horses, the sheep, and Navajo would all go. They are leaders just like President Roosevelt. So also a grain of salt. But, um, <laughs> right, but you know, context yeah. for the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and then another one was you must respect Natle. They are sacred and holy. And that is still true. If you ask me, don't need to take any salts with that one because it is correct. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Straight from the source. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Uh, yeah, really quickly, Mojave also had two-spirit roles. There's actually some anthropological sources from 1949 by Margaret Mead, which describe male-assigned two-spirit folks actually like mimicking pregnancy and childbirth, and would even, quote, go inside from the camp to be ceremonially delivered of stones. So really fully engaging in women's roles, even down to facsimile of childbirth and menstruation. Another big one that we wanted to mention is among Lakota. Winkate, which translates to wants or wishes to be like a woman. There's also analogous one for female assigned folks. I wasn't able to find a phonetic translation for this one, so this is my best. Bloka Egla Wake, which is thinks she can act like a man. Winkate is a contraction of an older Lakota word, and uh, Winkate traditionally had a ceremonial role of like special name giving. There's a story from a man named John Fire, or Lame Deer, which was recorded by a man named Richard Erdos in 1973. And it's the story of, like, the two of them going and having a drink in a bar, and they encounter a Winkate. And it says, He told me that a Winkate has a gift of prophecy, and that he himself could predict the weather. In our tribe, we go to a Winkate to give a newborn child a secret name. A name given by a Winkate is supposed to bring its bearer luck and long life. Mm. And then in terms of like kind of origins of Lakota ideas of like how a Winkate person comes to be, in this same story from this, this person in this bar, they said, We think if a woman has two little ones growing inside of her, if she's going to have twins, sometimes instead of giving birth to two babies, they have formed up in her womb into just one, into a half-man, half-woman kind of being. We call such a person a winkte. 
To us, a man is what nature or his dreams makes him. We accept him for what he wants to be. That's up to him. And then this is in 1972, which then goes on to kind of show the effects of like colonized thought. He says, still, fathers did not like to see their boys hanging around a Winkate's place and told them to stay away. So even in the same sentence, right, like here's the importance of these people. And also here's the remnants of mm -hmm. what's been passed down in like this distorted way. What year is that? You said seven. Oh, 72. Yeah. 72. Yeah. So. It, yeah, it is interesting that like the, the oral history like survived talking about like how real and important they are. And then also like, you know, it's it's a weird thing to kind of shake. Like you said, it's so abrupt, like in the same thought. Mm -hmm. um, but another people that we want to highlight are the Cheyenne people. Their word for their two spirit identities, again, doing our best to do pronunciations is himane, meaning like half men, half women. These individuals often took on the role of matchmakers, but they were also leaders of, we mentioned earlier, like scalp dance, like death rite ceremonies. And they were important figures in war parties. They were there for like moral support, but also caring for the wounded. George Grinnell in 1923 said, quote, these old time scalp dances were directed by a little group of men called Himane half men, half women, who usually dressed as old men. They were very popular and special favorites of the young people, whether married or not, for they were noted matchmakers. They were fine love talkers, which, great. You're going to put that on your Tinder profile? A fine love talker. Fine love yeah. talker. Gender yeah. anomaly and fine love talker. Moon instructed. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even do dating app. What, what, what is that? I would swipe swipe right. Do you swipe right on people you like? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'd swipe right. I had to like swipe in the air to like double check. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. slash Gays don't know their lefts from their rights. <laughs> I don't. At least I know that the L makes like the left hand makes an L. I do like, that all the time. I got that. That's all I need. Um. <laughs> Uh, the same guy goes on later to say, like, when they went with the war parties, they watched all that was being done and in the fight cared for the wounded in which they were skillful for they were doctors or medicine men. This is interesting how, like, throughout many tribes, we've already seen this thread of being caretakers, doctors, medicine men. And in 1960, E. Adamson Hobel in the book The Cheyennes said, quote, War parties like to have the half men, half women along, not only for their medical skills, but because they are socially graceful and entertaining. So it was not only like physical healing, but emotional and spiritual healing as well, like making people feel like there was somebody there that cared for them. All right. So last section before we start to like go into our wrap up is we have to talk about what happened to these histories, the effects of colonization. All of these sources that we've been mentioning, right? You've been hearing 1700, 1800, something, 1900 anthropological sources. All of these are, are taking these this information already from individuals that have been affected by colonization. Um, big trigger warnings for this whole section that we wanted to bring in. Mm -hmm. How did we get from what we were talking about before and these individual tribal roles to why we have to read these things from these shitty white men? Yeah. To like why somebody sitting next to me is telling me that like they don't believe in me, you know? Like, right. Yeah. Why we have people coming to our two-spirit powwow with Bibles yelling at us. Oh, fun times. Yes. So yes. great. She was carrying a parrot. That parrot deserves better, honestly. Um. So European colonizers targeted two-spirit people almost immediately from the 1500s onward. And the violence and anti-indigeneity was perpetuated through religion, through destruction of cultural language. So even just the use of sodomite, hermaphrodite, Pradash. 
Yeah. All of those, in addition to physical violence and genocide. Um, there's a, a new book out by historian Gregory Smithers called Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal, and Sovereignty in Native America that has a really good quote about the language, or the, like the violence of language that says, that language was itself a form of violence because it shaped the written archival records that scholars used to write their histories, and it distorted how non-Native people interpreted indigenous sexual expression and gender fluidity. So, um... And also distorted how Native people now interpret their own histories surrounding this. Yeah, exactly. And one of my absolute favorite things to talk about is like what happened when these people brought religion. I was asked to do a talk one time to a high school group and I talked a lot about the role that religion played in colonization and found out later that it was a, uh, a religious high school. So that must have oh, been fun. fun for them. So you're going to get a taste <laughs> of what they all learned on a very hard Tuesday afternoon. Mini um, TED Talk, mini yay. TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at the time, you know, once I'm going to say, quote unquote, like first contact is made, we're looking at this Spanish expedition of Christopher Columbus, right, bringing missionaries. And from where he originally landed, the Spanish ended up like on the mainland through California area to Texas-ish. If you know anything about like the U.S. fighting against Mexico and Spain for like land, the Spanish were very heavily present in the West. And so you had the Spanish on one side and the soon-to-be Americans on the East Coast, and it created this way of living, right? And so each group had their own way of dealing with indigenous tribes, right? There's two ways that you can do this, like no matter who you are. You can focus on assimilation or you can focus on annihilation. The soon-to-be Americans was all about killing people because they wanted the land and they knew that indigenous people would be an issue. They had the land, they weren't going to leave, so this meant that they just had to like kill everybody. So this is a obviously huge source of lost history like entire tribes of people were just completely wiped out and like yes biological warfare like played a role people will talk a lot about how they're like oh well you know it was actually disease that killed most of the native americans or whatever and like yeah that's true but <coughs> also because, how, how do you think that got there yeah you would like trade them smallpox blankets you know like it was in many cases like extremely intentional so like fuck 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 colonialism We'll just give that a spot. Yeah. Put it right in there. <laughs> Get ready for a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, America was like, you know, we're just going to kill as many people as we can. And the Spanish, they practiced mostly assimilation. They enslaved the indigenous people and forced them to take on religion. And so like we see this very prominently in Bay Area, California with um, the Ohlone people. Those are like, I think, 20 to 30 tribes all kind of like crammed into like one name Ohlone people that the Spanish kind of just rounded up all of these peoples with their own languages and traditions and identities. And they just said, you're all the Ohlone now and welcome to the mission system. For those of you who aren't familiar, like California has basically churches like up and down the coast that travelers could stop at and have a place to rest and eat, whatever those are called the missions. And so they would round up the indigenous people of the area and make them build these buildings, make the food, grow the food, like any type of physical labor that they could get them to do that is what the purpose of the indigenous people were for them so um and if, according to my fourth grade history textbook oh it was no. just super great for all of the indigenous people they are super they had so much fun they learned how to read they were living in buildings oh god oh yeah this god. is thankfully in the in recent years it's changing but i mean literally mm -hmm. as somebody who's grown up in california one major module of like fourth grade learning is learning about the missions yes except 
you know, without the like, oh, by the way, did you know that these were sites of like cultural and actual physical genocide? <laughs> Let's make a sugar cube model. Exactly. Like if you grew up in California, you either had to build a model of the missions in like third grade, like you built a middle school. Oh, yeah. Version, third grade. Like, That's like, right. Yeah. Like third grade, like model of the missions or you went on a field trip to a mission or like if you were lucky like me, you had a school that was like, hey, just do a California landmark. And so like I didn't have to thankfully build a mission, but everybody else in my school did because it was like the easiest thing. Like the craft stores here sell mission building kits. That's how relevant it is to like Californians. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, if, if these indigenous people resisted this religion, they would die. So it was either this decision of like, you accept God and Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and renounce everything that you learned to love and do. You lose your language. You don't get to practice your traditions. You don't get to practice your gender identities anymore. Or we kill you and all of your children. And so as a means of survival, like people had to choose to like accept this religion because you don't want your children to die. It was this other way of just ripping history away from people because it was a new lesson that like your beliefs are satanic. Obviously, like religion in of itself, like brought this idea that homosexuality is wrong and that you have to stick to your gender roles. So like Maurice Kenny, they say, quote, it must be recalled that pleasure sex was branded wrong by, quote, civilized Europeans. Male love was destroyed more than ignored in the macho Spanish New World. So it isn't just this idea that like this is bad, don't do it. It is like you are doing this and therefore you are going to be punished for it. And like having that long lasting like comfort that had been built up just completely ripped away from you. Yeah. And by the time we get a lot of these sources, like colonization had already made huge changes within indigenous communities. And it affected both the outsider views, right? You have all these anthropologists or colonizers coming in and being like, oh, these sodomites and this is disgusting and it's a sin. But intra-community attitudes had changed, right? So like by, uh, Will Roscoe notes that by the 1930s and 1940s, white ridicule and judgment and also like as a result of that changing Diné attitudes had created pressures on Natle to not cross-dress. And so he says, quote, in the absence of this traditional marker of their status, one finds them described simply in these sources as bachelors or men not interested in women. So it's like we have trouble parsing, you know, whether someone like Hustin Kla would have been dressing differently had they not been existing in their identity amid the early 1900s, 1920s. Exactly. It's that idea of like people saying like the world's turning transgender, like media's turning kids transgender. It's like, no, it's not that there weren't trans people, like they're just safe to come out now, right? It's the opposite. Like there were a ton of two-spirit people, but they're not safe to be out anymore. And so like we lose those firsthand stories. And yeah. so like these attitudes like forced people to hide. Or worse, you know, like this, if you're looking for a specific trigger warning, like this is it. This is where it gets like violent and gory. But yeah, so like many two-spirit traditions and practices went underground or they disappeared altogether. So we weren't allowed to just be outwardly practicing even things just like dancing, singing, drumming. But specifically for like two-spirit people, like we acted as knowledge keepers, right? And the goal of settler colonialism is to use violence to, quote, destroy a vital link in the cultural, social, and linguistic knowledge of nearly 200 Native communities. And that's from Gregory Smithers from an interview. So these acts of violence against your knowledge keepers are the direct link on how you're going to lose your histories. And so because of this, unfortunately, we do have some very graphic and horrific documented cases of two-spirit genocide. 
Yeah, probably like one of the most well-known incidents in history that's been documented is the Spanish invader Vasco Nunez de Balboa in 1513 rounded up 40-something Two-Spirit people in Panama and, again, major trigger warning, threw them in a ditch and released hungry dogs into the ditch after them. And the reason why we we know about this event is because it was memorialized in an engraving by a man named Theodore de Bry. And the engraving, the piece of quote-unquote art, um, is described as, quote, Balboa throws a number of Indians who committed the sin of sodomy to the hounds. So this event, of course, solidified the understanding that gender nonconformity or queerness or whatever, anything that is not in this very specific Western worldview is not okay and would be met with extreme violence. It is it is a really, really difficult drawing to to, to look at look at and to witness. And the fact that this is this this is like, you know, one of the only representations of two spirit indigenous people that you see like depicted mm-hmm. in history and it's it's this it's this horrific really one. Really terrible moment of violence. And what's really hard, too, is, like, if you look it up, like, one of the first links is a site where you can, like, buy a framed picture of it. And, like, yeah. I know it's one of these websites that kind of, like, generates these, oh, you looked for this picture, here's a frame to go with it, you know? But it's, like, it's, like, searching, like, the Twin Towers and they're being, like, oh, what about this beautiful frame to accompany, you know, it's, like... I'd love is... this on my wall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's really weird. And weird is a very light word for it. I just, I don't know what else to say yeah so you know it's uh, i mean we're recording this right now you know i haven't decided yet i guess you'll find out when (laughs) when you listen to this episode whether or not we will put this image on the blog post this one is like oh Mm -hmm. yeah and putting a little bit of emphasis back on like the telling of like oral histories i cannot remember who told me this but i was told a story about one time this family whose child was two-spirit and they were in the early enslavement of the spaniards and so their child started telling their family like i don't want to be doing boy things i want to do girl things and like the family was like oh my gosh this is amazing like we need to celebrate and so they went to the spanish leaders in the mission were saying like hey this is wonderful like our child's discovering their identity like we need to celebrate this spiritual connection and the spanish were like um absolutely not they shut it down so fast and like luckily i don't know if that story has a really horrible ending but i'm sure it wasn't great and so like these stories although not written down like survived long enough at least for like a descendant of these family to be able to tell me like oh this happened Mm. yeah Another, like, big element of how this history was lost was the effects and introduction of residential schools. So starting in 1879, the U.S. and Canadian governments forcibly removed thousands of Two-Spirit people and Indigenous children from their tribes and families and sent them to boarding schools or uh, residential schools, as they were referred to in Canada. Between the 1880s and the 1970s, The last ones were not shut down until 1970s. -hmm. Just think about that. Over 350 of these schools, or as many people have come to refer to them, assimilation camps, were operating within the U.S. That's that's over 350 just in the U.S., not to mention all the ones throughout Canada. Yeah. um, Um, I actually have two aunts that attended residential schools. And being so young, she's like, the only thing I really remember was cheerleading. And so mm. like, she's like, I blocked most of it out. But like, I remember cheerleading. And then I remember being offered a one way ticket out of there. And I took it, you know, and like, that's how my family ended up in California. There you go. Yeah. But in these residential schools, these cis heteronormative anti indigenous roles were like forced onto children. 
school forbade them from acknowledging their own cultures, like wearing any indigenous clothing or speaking their own languages. The classic, like washing their mouth out with soap, cutting their hair, cutting their hair. Like you can see some really, really like heartbreaking images of young indigenous boys having their braids being cut off, which is like Mm. long hair is a a symbol of like your connection to the spirit world. And like in many cultures, especially like Dene, you don't cut your hair unless you are like in mourning. So I guess in a way it was I would have been in mourning, but it's not something that you can choose for someone else. Right. And so like this is where you hear that old phrase, like kill the Indian, save the man. That was the the whole point point you're taking them here you're turning them into like a quote-unquote civilized person you're saving the man with inside but you're killing everything and then that makes him like indigenous and so like all kinds of just abuse and horrific treatment abounded these institutions and they created a legacy of intergenerational trauma and it is reliving like we're watching today them finding all of these children buried on the grounds of these residential schools and so it, it highlights the horrific treatment that these children went through let alone being a child that might be like showing some gender difference, you know, like how that would affect the treatment that you're already receiving. Yeah. So I think it's it's really important as we're here right now, like the importance of current two-spirit people both reclaiming and also making their own Mm -hmm. history, right? I mean, this is one of the episodes where like, you know, we've had a lot of quotes and we'll include poetry on the on the blog post and things like that from people right now because this is a very specific instance of like you have to reconstruct, you have to reclaim. So you see a lot of people kind of adding to the oral history record using poetry and film and writing and just kind of accounts of how they reflect on their own identity and their relationship to colonial forces. Like the the book that we keep mentioning, Living the Spirit. Uh, it, so it's it's an anthology. It says uh, Living the Spirit an anthology by gay American Indians, which is the name of an organization in the 70s. And a lot of it is people's poetry and people's kind of recounting of their own oral traditions. And as a historian, like, you can't discount that because we're filling in so many gaps. Yeah. And I'll also have leave a link to a two-spirit published poetry compilation that some of the like Bates founders contributed to. Like, it's really cool. It's really beautiful. Heck yeah. So, so you know, jumping into a little bit less of like, and here's a bunch of genocide and terrible, terrible things. <laughs> Moving out of the really heavy, sad stuff. Like, yeah. Um, you know, we, we haven't mentioned specific names of people in this episode because we didn't want to do a disservice to a couple of these specific individuals that are noted in the historic record by breezing over their stories. Um, so we'll do episodes on them. Either they'll have their own or we'll put a couple in each. Mm-hmm. Um, but those will be opportunities to really kind of go into some of these badass people's stories. And I know this is basically a joke at this point. It's like, oh, we should do an episode on that. And then, you know, it never happens. It will happen. They will happen. Even if it's um, another year from namely now. Namely because this episode has like <laughs> changed so many times. But a couple of names that you're going to see in the future, we just wanted to bring them up really briefly right now. Our wonderful friends over at Queer as Fact have done a couple of really wonderful episodes on some of these folks that we suggest you check out. You know, if you've been waiting for us to do an episode on, on any of these folks, stay tuned. We have Wiwa, who was a Zuni person of Lamana gender. They lived from 1849 to 1896 and were a weaver. And they actually ended up visiting President Grover Cleveland. And they have much of their life documented. The new Bates drum is also named after Wiwa. Yes, that's right. You told me that. That's so awesome. We'll have to we'll have to really bring that up when we do their episode. 
There's a, a female assigned person named Kakshuma Nupika, who was a Tanaha person, and they carried a bow and arrow. They had a wife. They were actually known as basically like a fortune teller. They were able to uh, predict the future, and they're described in Kit Haim's new book, Before We Were Trans. We'll cover Oshtish, who was a crow bate we mentioned up above, who was a weaver, and there's a whole bunch about their life. They're really wonderful, and they were also really important in many war parties. We've got uh, Hastin Kla, who's Diné. We'll also talk about Beowashishish, who was a crow person, adopted into crow, was born Gross Ventre, and is known as Woman Chief, who was living from 1800 to 1854. And then you wanted to mention Lozen. Right. Yeah, the one I'm most excited about because like grew up with her story like forever. She was Chirikawa Apache. She was part of Geronimo's band, the very last people that were left like roaming and free fighting against the colonizers that were trying to come and get them. She is also known for her ability to like have premonitions and knowing where like the enemies are going to attack. So she is also kind of like a fortune teller and badass medicine woman. Love her so much. Hell yeah. So yeah, so you'll see more about these folks in their own episodes. We just we didn't want to try to like squish them and have really abbreviated biographies, but we also thought it was important to kind of do an episode where we just kind of laid out like here's the general idea of a lot of these things and that would give us the opportunity when we do those episodes to really go into like okay, what was Oshtish's life like and what is Crow ideas about gender and the roles of Abate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, like without why, having to do why like are these names numbered as opposed to like other ones and you know like mm-hmm. there were more two-spirit people like why do we remember these ones as you learn their stories like you'll go oh this makes more sense and also they were written down <laughs> yeah they were written down you know it's like there's so many people exactly yeah okay so pop culture tie-in there's <laughs> not a lot um like sam was mentioning they were on a panel about indigenous representation in media and it was a five that's panel. a very i'm just kidding yeah it's very there's not a lot of indigenous representation mm-hmm. in media and even among that um well is that's, there any that's really telling it's really telling that like at a queer women's conference we had to talk about indigenous representation and not queer indigenous representation because indigenous representation on its own is already non-existent mm-hmm. yeah so a couple of things that we could kind of highlight as existing out there that aren't like the most egregiously racist and, uh, <laughs> you know, outdated things <laughs> that we don't need to point people towards. There's a couple of documentaries, one from 2011. It was a PBS documentary by Lydia Nibley called Two Spirits. And it talks a lot about uh, Natle, but it's, you know, trigger warning. It does follow the story of the 2001 murder of a person named Fred Martinez, who described themselves as Natle. So, you know. Trigger warning for the fact that, like, it's following the story of. It's a very a sad crime. story, but it is told very well. So, yeah, if you're going to watch it, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also a more recent 2019 documentary by Rick Bacigalupi called Two-Spirit Powwow, which follows the evolution of Bates' Two-Spirit Powwow that happens every year. Every year, if you can make it out to San Francisco, it is worth experiencing. It's usually in February, so (laughs) check the website because you want to make it out. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure where folks can watch the documentary right now. I think it went through like the festival circuit a little bit, but you might be able to dig around, see if, you know, it's available to to watch any where I've seen it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think I'm going to talk to the board and see if we can find a way to get it accessible to people. Sweet. Nice. Um, in terms of fiction, <laughs> not really many depictions of two-spirit people in general, and those that exist aren't great. Um, a couple of notable examples. 
American Gods. The second season has a character who's Cherokee called Sam Black Crow, who is played by Kawena Harry Devery Jacobs, who's Mohawk. And the character identifies as Two-Spirit or in the show two-spirited and i think in neil gaiman's original book is just bisexual um hmm. interesting and so they adapted that for the the show i haven't seen it so i can't make any kind of value judgments on it yeah, um, yeah and then there's also lovecraft country which had a character yahima who was an arawak two-spirit character but it was like a very very minor character who was there for like one episode and ended up meeting violence and death and there was like a, a big response to it i think there were a lot of people who a lot of two-spirit people and a lot of indigenous people who were like hey we have so few mm-hmm. <laughs> examples of like two-spirit representation why is the one that we get this minor character who then is killed it's the barrier gaze trope you know the the shock yep. value yeah i think there's also um a two-spirit character in the miseducation of cameron post but they go to like a conversion therapy camp so oh, not yeah. fun Mm-mm. Um, so for this reason, we really wanted to like end the episode with specifically pointing folks towards some two-spirit artists who are working right now and making really wonderful, amazing things. And go support them. Go check out their works. Give them money. <laughs> support tribal sovereignty. So yeah. First person is, we mentioned them up above, Geosoctima Neptune, who uses she, they pronouns. She's a two-spirit Passamaquoddy master basket weaver, performer, and model. And they also just recently became the first openly two-spirit person elected to public office in Maine in 2020. Um, I-, I follow her Instagram. I've followed for years and uh, so uh, so good. So good. When, please, when they, please. When they got elected, I remember like calling one of my friends. I was like, oh my God, did you just say that? Oh my God. Because like I ran for congress in 2020 and so i was like oh, we would have yeah. we you know if if i had more money we would have done it together hell yeah <laughs> um <laughs> the next person is arachnid who is a two-spirit oji cree so like ojibwe and cree mikmak singer based in montreal the description of their music is like indie trap like electro pop music it is a creature of its own yeah and she she put out an album i think it's called dream weaver we'll link to there is Karen Potts, who uses he, him pronouns, who is a Wicked man from Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation. He is an indigenous youth advocate, comedian, and an actor, and he does a Snapchat video series focusing on indigeneity and like Gen Z culture that's called Reclaimed, which is pretty cool. I think the stuff that's coming out of Gen Z, especially on like indigenous TikTok, how they're reclaiming indigenous culture is like so freaking cool. Yeah, TikTok is a big one. Like, if you want to see a bunch of cool indigenous creators get on TikTok, who is this next person? is is a big person on TikTok as well. And then the last person we want to highlight today is Bobby Sanchez, who uses she, they pronouns, who is Quechua Wari, two-spirit singer, rapper, performer, and slam poet. Like Lisa, this person is like really big on TikTok. And we are going to put the link to Quechua 101 Land Back Please for you to go ahead and check out. Do you want to say anything about that, Lee? It's just, it's really good. It's it's a slam poem rap. It's one of the things that they uh, like went viral for. She has a whole bunch more stuff, but like this is, this is a big one to check out. And it's just really, it's just really good. It's just really good. Kind of going back to the fiction things. I, and you know, take my opinion with a grain of salt as like a non-Indigenous person, but I have really, really enjoyed watching the show Reservation Dogs, mm. which 
is a wholly indigenous cast and writing team and and showrunners. They have not really tackled any, you know, specifically like two-spirit topics or characters yet, but it's a really good show and it's it's nice to see something that is created by indigenous creators. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet because I was too scared they were going to just cancel it after one season. So I was like, I'm not going to get into it <laughs> until I know there's more coming out. So now that there's a second season, like I actually have to sit down and, and watch it. But I think like something that came to mind when we were talking was we, we mentioned that like two-spirit people like you're not two-spirit just because like you don't necessarily like cling to these quote-unquote like gender roles mm. just because you don't want to do quote-unquote girl things doesn't mean you're two-spirit and like what that brought up for me too was the movie prey like mm. the main character in prey like she is very much pushing back against the expected role of herself right like she doesn't want to sit at home she wants to go out and hunt and ultimately like saves her people right but like does that mean that you know she would identify with two-spirit because she's like a badass warrior like not necessarily and i think that's also like really important representation too of like you can be different without having to like ascribe a completely new identity to yourself right yeah all right well we have reached the end of our episode oh no and so now it is time for our how gay were they ratings this is where you insert the like do 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 like foghorns you know the klaxons yeah 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 so, uh, Sam, yes. my beloved friend, who is on this podcast for the I first but not last time, yes. <laughs> um, we have a tradition here that I lovingly haze my co-hosts <laughs> uh, by making them go first in this section. All right. So, you know, this is a good place for kind of our main takeaways, conclusions, final thoughts. If you had to rate various, <laughs> various <laughs> groups of indigenous people pre-slash-mid-colonization in terms of how gay they were, asterisk, <laughs> knowing that this is not, like, one-to-one comparison yes, yes. of, like, <laughs> trans and queer identity, blah, 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 blah. If you had to rate folks on a one-to-whatever random number scale of fun, what would you rate folks? How gay were slash are two-spirit people? I would put pre-colonial America, not even just two-spirit people, pre-colonial America at like a 7.5 or 8 fry breads out of 10. So Fry breads? Yes. You know, Hell yes. Yes. Probably, yeah, I would probably say 8 fry breads out of 10 because, because like even if it's not gay in the terms that like we talk about today, like the fact that like we don't use gendered language, you know, like come on, that is completely opposite of what we do now. So like absolutely, yeah, I would put that pretty high. Hell yeah. Yeah, I think for me, um, I don't know. I mean, for me, as somebody coming in from the outside, right, I would I would give probably like an 11 out of 10 instructions <laughs> from the moon yes. um, of, of gayness. You know, it's I feel for folks who, you know, we, we, we continued coming upon the same narrative in this podcast of like white people going around mm-hmm. ruining shit for <laughs> everyone. And I hope that. Being able to, like, kind of piece back bits of the puzzle is healing for folks, yeah, you know? Yeah. I think, like, one of the words that you used earlier that has just been coming up again in my, is, like, reconstruction, you know? Mm. And so, like, this is literally what we're having to do is, like, just reconstruct this thing that was knocked down. And so, yeah, 11, 11 out of 10 is, like, pretty good. I feel kind of bad with my 8 now, <laughs> but I think I'm going to stick to my 8. <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sam. I'm so glad this ended up working out. This has been a long time in the making. Yeah. Also, like this episode was supposed to be released the day that we're recording this. Um, yes. And then health stuff has happened. And also it took us a while to get ready. 
it's been a journey and I'm so glad and so grateful that I get to call you a friend and also oh, get to text you. you about like Xena shit. I all was the just going to say that I'm so glad I get to live vicariously <laughs> through you as you like live my Xena dream life. So, <laughs> um, well, can you tell folks who are listening, where can people find more about you online? Where can they get more Sam? Well, it's been weird because it for a little while was Twitter, and now I don't think I ever want to set foot on that platform And now Twitter again. is crumbling. Yeah. Um, I don't use Instagram as much, but when I do, it is gender is the universe. You can also find me on TikTok. It's called Welcome to the Cosmos. It hasn't been as active, but now that I'm in a stable workplace, I'm going to be like going back there again, and you can take a look at some science education that I do around astronomy. Those are the two places that you'll really be able to find me. Awesome. And we will also post a link to where folks can watch your... Oh, my two TED Talks. Yes. Yeah, your TED Talks. Woo. Wow, I got some accomplishments. <laughs> yeah. As for me, I'm Lee Pfeffer, and when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks or yelling about Xena or just um, having a constant thread of fuck colonialism going through my brain, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter for however long that exists. You can also find me by the same name on Instagram, A Paradox in Flux. History is Gay podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay podcast, Twitter, again, who knows how long, and Instagram at History is Gay pod. Uh, I want to thank my wonderful friend Tashi Rowe, who is a patron and has been stepping into another like kind of assistance role and has been doing some really wonderful things with our social media so say hi to her over there you can always drop us a line with questions suggestions or just to say hi at history is gay podcast at gmail.com if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it you can become a patron on patreon as a patron you can get access to our secret discord server sappho salon minisodes where we treat you to love letters and poems from queer historical faves pop culture tie-in live watches we just did one with our wonderful gretchen coming back to watch wild nights with emily with us and future queer history trivia nights. I promise those will come. I've just <laughs> been too busy. Exclusive merch and more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website or patreon.com slash history is gay. And I would mention some of our specific wonderful patrons, but I haven't had any new ones since the last episode. So if you want your name read out at the end of this episode, you should go click that little button. Get some fun stuff. Lee from the future popping in here really quick just to say that since we recorded this episode, we have in fact had another patron join. So thank you so much to Elizabeth Denton for hopping on there and supporting the show. I love you. Uh, you can buy merch at our History is Gay store, click on shop on our website, and lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show and we can expand our awesome community. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious.